Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture, bringing you the voices of the voiceless from Kolkata to Casablanca, here on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and 93.7 FM in northern San Diego, as well as streaming worldwide on kpfk.org. My name is David Lloyd, and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective, that brings you your weekly half-hour of SWANA Region Radio. My co-host today is fellow Collective member Rana Sharif. Today, as California yet again faces prolonged drought conditions, severe water shortages, and imminent restrictions on water consumption, we devote the show to a conversation with water protectors in Palestine and in the U.S. Southwest. Both regions are subject to settler colonial regimes that bring with them sustained resources extraction, including the overconsumption of water resources that are a precious and limited element in these arid regions. We discuss the violence of settler colonial regimes that discount both indigenous understandings of wise water use and the cultural and religious meanings of water, and that monopolize and deplete once rich water resources to serve urban and agricultural expansion. We consider the legal and other resistance strategies deployed to protect and preserve water sources in both regions and the growing problem of settler-driven desertification that has harmed the formerly rich ecologies of Palestine and the U.S. Southwest. And Rana and I would like to thank our sister show, Middle East in Focus, for donating us their showtime to allow us a full hour for this important conversation. Our guests today are scholar and activist Dr. Muna Dajani, speaking to us from Occupied Jerusalem, and Dr. Amra Solomon J., Amber Ortega, and Napoleon Marietta, members of the Ottam Anti-Border Collective straddling the Arizona and Mexico border region. Dr. Muna Dajani is a Palestinian Jerusalemite and a research associate at Lancaster Environment Center. She holds a PhD in Geography and Environment from the London School of Economics, the LSE. Her research focuses on documenting the lived experiences of agricultural communities in the context of settler colonialism in occupied Syrian Golan and the Galilee, Al-Batuf Valley. She's also a member of Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. Amra Solomon Jay is a writer, artist, activist, and assistant professor of English at University of California, Santa Barbara. She's a member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Environmental Justice and the OTAM Anti-Border Collective. Her work has been published in both academic and literary publications in the United States, the UK, and in Mexico. Amber Ortega is a member of the Tohono O'odham Nation and is a tribal student, poet, and water protector. She's also a descendant of the Hiaset O'odham, a band of O'odham, currently federally unrecognized. She's been engaged on indigenous land resistance work, protecting Quito Baquito, a sacred water site to all Otam. Napoleon Marietta, Akimel Otam, Tohono Otam, and Pi Posh, is an enrolled member of the Gila River Indian Community and serves as the American Indian Student Support Services graduate assistant at Arizona State University. Napoleon graduated in 2017 with a bachelor's degree in justice studies and American Indian studies with a certificate in American Indian governance at ASU. 
He's currently an ASU master's student studying American Indian studies with an emphasis on indigenous rights and social justice and public administration in the Watts College of Public Service and Community Solutions. A warm welcome to the show to all of you. Muna, maybe, maybe I can start with you as the sole Palestinian representative on our show today and ask you to tell us just a little more about the work you have been doing as an activist, as well as a scholar on water resources in Palestine, how they have been impacted by settler colonialism, and also what you think are the main areas of concern for Palestinians right now. And I know there are many. Thank you, David. I'm also looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, where do we start? Basically, my interest in, in the research that I've been doing for the past few years is kind of recentering the focus when we speak about Palestinian water rights and we speak about injustice that Palestinians face, that not to really focus only on aspects of Palestinian state building and water-related issues in the Palestinian state, but rather kind of link up that Palestine is a justice issue. It's a struggle based on exploitation of resources and the expropriation of uh, natural resources, the dispossession of Palestinians from their land, from their resources. And to kind of have that historical perspective and to kind of always shed light on the colonial legacy that we're facing today. Because Palestine in the past few decades has been framed as a nation-state building project that really limits very much limits uh, what we speak about when we speak about justice. It's not about only achieving water justice or uh, water rights in the West Bank and Gaza. Sometimes Gaza today is not even in the picture, but kind of really linking, linking it up to Israel as a settler colonial project and uh, the dispossession it has caused to Palestinians, not only in their relationship with natural resources, Sources, but in also in identity formation and what it means to be Palestinian. So this is, in a nutshell, what, what I try to do in my research, make this explicit link between settler colonialism and environmental slash climate injustice and uh, indigenous rights. Well, can, can I just follow up quickly with that? I'm aware, of course, that it's not just a question of protecting specific localities and, for example, the springs that have traditionally been sources of water for Palestinian communities, but also a larger picture of water extraction, which I think will resonate also with indigenous struggles about water here. It was a man called Martin Sherman, who you may know has written a, a, a book on, on Israeli water policy and was very active with us. But he made this argument that without extracting the water, Israel itself as an economy could not survive because people wouldn't want to come to work there. Does that, does that resonate for you as, as an argument about why the settler colonial entity of Israel is, is so keen to monopolize water resources? In a way, it's also this conundrum always how Israel frames itself as, you know, the tech savvy nation where technology has been kind of their landmark contribution, not only to their project, to their Zionist establishment of the state of Israel, but also to the world in a way. Um, so in a way, that on one hand is saying technology saves the day and we have the technology to enhance and increase water availability, for example, uh, or be more efficient in terms of agricultural water use. But on the other hand, there's also kind of the threat of, oh, 
Without water, we cannot survive as a nation. And water has been, you know, in, in, in the work of many scholars like Samar al speaking of this like abundance and scarcity kind of conundrum in a way uh, that shaped Israeli water policymaking. Because on one end, David, as you say, you know, it's important to show that image that this uh, project is attracting people to settle in land that has abundance of resources. But when it comes to actual equal distribution of those resources to, uh, let's say, not only for Palestinians, but also for Arabs that share like the Jordan River Basin, for example, a water source that is today totally manipulated and controlled com- completely by Israel and monopolized by Israel, there comes the scarcity narrative saying, oh, we need that because we need to have that to establish that kind of like, I don't know, association that we are in need of water and we control that water. And there is kind of like a territorial sovereignty aspect to it, but also in, in a sense, an ideational aspect to it, that we've built the biggest national water carrier, the biggest conveyor of water to take water, this, you know, sacred water from the Jordan River sources to our settlements in the Naqab, in the Negev. And, you know, that sentiment, that kind of uh, dominance over nature and over people and over land still dominates until today. And there is this feeling that, oh, we need it. That's in a way what attracts settlers as well, because this feeling of, oh, this water is not only a source that is used to irrigate crops, but it has that sentiment. And that's, I think, where water becomes mm-hmm. a politicized object of uh, of resistance on one hand for Palestinians, but also of this identity, identity formation. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so it is right there. Thank you, Mona. Lest we forget, we're here on occupied land in Southern California. And we're going to hear from Amra and uh, Napoleon and Amr in just a moment. But uh, Mona, I wanted to ask you, so what does that work look like in terms of restorative memory practices, for example, through water? What are the kinds of ways that Palestinians are engaging that you're interfacing with on an everyday level in terms of the preservation of the sanctity of water within the community? The people that you speak to, how does that look like on the ground? Like, What are the kinds of efforts, the conversations, the ways in which um, the collective and community comes together in terms of water? If you could talk a little bit about that, and then we'll obviously um, expand on that as well. I think there's been a very, like, a big tectonic shift in terms of how water is it's not only being sh- like shaped and the, and research and knowledge produced about it in the last decades, there's been a very big shift in terms of like actually, uh, you know, highlighting that water's materi- materiality is not the only thing about water. We have to kind of understand water in its multiplicity, meaning that uh, Palestinian uh, activists, Palestinians, artists, and uh, communities that are in desperate need of water, that are being denied water, access to water, are not looking at water only as a resource to be right. secured. So we're not looking only at technological solutions, let's say that desalinations in the Gaza Strip, for example, that could be kind of a very non-political uh, solution to, uh, you know, a man-made and uh, occupation-made problem in Gaza in terms of water access. But people are looking at saying, okay, it's it's actually, this it's, is very political and this is very colonial and we have to reclaim our right to water and our association with it. We, we want to reclaim back our springs. We want to understand their history. We want to know how we can have a futurity with those resources as well. So it kind of goes beyond the materiality of it that, you know, the the last few decades has all, always been about, oh, how much water do Palestinians right. uh, have to get in order to get, you know, their water rights. And that's kind of really shifting 
in drastic ways and in really inspiring ways. Although the situation on the ground remains that of very highly, like, you know, unequal access to resources that is getting really worse, especially under climate change conditions and in the climate crisis we face today. But again, this, the, the radius of hope is there in terms of community mobilization, looking at water beyond its materiality, but kind of how it connects us to land, how it connects us to water, to our ancestors, and to our future as well. So, so that's, that's where, where we are today. So let me move our geographical focus for a second to bring in our other guests. Perhaps Amber and Napoleon and Amra, take us to the situation of water in the Southwest, which, as we all know, living here is a largely arid kind of climate, but which has been subject to an intense degree of water extraction, both for urban water supplies from Arizona through to Los Angeles, and of course, also for huge agricultural investment, particularly here in California. Can you just introduce yourselves and then explain a little bit how this has affected your own traditional communities and what kinds of struggles you're actually engaged in to defend these water resources and to see that they they actually are able to persist into the future for the next generations? Let me just call on Napoleon to to start off. Thank you for um, inviting us to speak a little bit on this topic. And for me... I'm a, a graduate student here at Arizona State University on the our traditional homelands of the Autumn and Peeposh. And I want to also recognize wherever listeners are from that they're on I recognize the indigenous territories that you all are, are on as well. And um so very early on before colonial settlement here, I'm part of the northern region of uh a larger land base of the autumn, and before we had contact with um, colonial entities, we are also uh, known as the Akumar Autumn, which derives to river people. So our livelihood, traditionally, culturally, spiritually, relied on the river, the Gila River. That was no ifs, ands, or buts. That's where all of our livestock, all of our crops, everything we grew will be made out of the land was derived from that area. So water is a sacred being to us because it is in our name and that's how we have identified ourselves with our other relatives down south, east and west of us, um, before settlement of now where we have Phoenix, Scottsdale, Tempe, Mesa, Tucson, Maricopa area. So water is a very a very holy being to us and What's detrimental, has been detrimental to us, was way back when we started seeing developments of dams across Arizona and Nevada and different areas, which starved our people to where now we had to rely on commodities, foods that were unnatural to our our well-being, spiritually, mentally, physically, and which leads to a lot of diabetes and a lot of health disparities so our struggle, first and foremost, before any anything contemporary, has been trying to protect our our health and regain these water structures that we've always wanted to see flourish in our communities. And it took a while for me to kind of learn that because, you know, we see everything every day of 
you know, yeah, there's there's a border wall and everything else. But if we go back to which our ourselves in which we've nurtured ourselves, it's always been about these beings that we've always longed to protect um, that has given us life and it entails everything. So if we talk about the land, can't talk about water without the land. We can't talk about resources without it. We can't talk about our foods. Um, we can't talk about our growth and um, things like that. So I've been mostly involved with a lot of, you know, culturally um, engaging things that are are inhabiting our, our areas, um, along with uh, the Autumn Anti-Border Collective, which is a larger scale um, further down with our relatives in the southern area. And so um, just being from the northern area, water is a very, very scarce thing, especially what we're seeing now with a lot of drought and climate change. And for us as a small community, um, that now is asked the question, what do we do? What, How are we keeping our areas? Because a lot of it is a lot of metropolitan areas trying to move in in our communities. So what are we doing to protect those areas? And what are we doing to protect our water? Now, um, to end everything is just what we have here in Gila River is a Water, Settle- water Settlement Act. And, and that can go in numerous ways. But I think with those things that are in court, you know, we also have to ask ourselves, you know, how long is this going to protect us before we have to go into battle in courts? So a lot of our our water protection is done legally, and but not to mention that there always been grassroots on the ground always trying to protect our water. Um, that's why you don't really hear much of the grassroots thing happening, but you always see legal um, challenges between us because we also share the river with other tribal communities as well. So that's a little bit about me and the stuff that I've been a part of. Um, I'll go ahead and hand it over to Amber. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Amber Ortega. So I'm Thalhanawatam and Hiachiratam. And so the Thalhano refers to being uh, from the desert, Thalhano being desert and Atam being people. And so Hiachiratam um, means sand. And so therefore I come from, you know, the desert and this sand. Um, so our people, you know, definitely have um, stories of of keeping water sacred and spe- very specifically um, Hiachiratam, uh, more specifically with the Quito Spring, um, also known as Aravapia, uh, both imply to um, the water being small. And also, you know, historically it's been um, sacred because of its location. So borders aside, you know, politics aside, um, this water is, is extremely, um, special and significant to, to all people, but very, very much so, um, Atham, Hiachiratam, because of our location in, in the desert and also because of the, um, the abundance that this very, you know, um, source of water brought. And it, it comes from the ground. Um, it's a natural spring and it's been nurtured for so many generations and it's home for home to endangered species. Um, there's a piquito, piquito, uh, pupfish and the Sinoita mud turtle. And there's the, you know, desert creeps and there's the medicinal plants, um, that exist there. And there's also, you know, because of a history, there being a battle for this very source of water, there are losses. There's historic losses and, 
and even um, documented, you know, and generational traces of our trauma because of this water. So this very specific water, you know, it was before the government, you know, the before uh, 1492, before, you know, things began to change drastically, you know, in terms of like politics and, and property, it, it it was ours. Um, and so the, our, our battle, you know, consists of it being um, ours, known as ours and as um, a part of our survival, you know, a very, a very, the very source of not only our, our own survival, but the survival of many plants and animals. For generations, you know, our elders, they fought for, for rights to access certain areas that were taken over by the government. Um, and, you know, land sold without acknowledging um, the true caretakers, the original caretakers, and then, you know, leaving people who whose source of survival, it, it's these waters and the lands and the plants and the animals that, you know, are surrounding. Um, you know, we have in our history, there being several instances where our people were charged for for attempting to harvest, um, even for um, attempting to stay on their homelands. And and so there's a history of forced removal, very specifically from a very sacred place, and that's Quito Paquito. And, you know, during border wall construction, it was a huge heartache to, to those of us, all of our, all of us, you know, pretty much you know, because we, don't have federal recognition as Hiachiratam, but as Tahanuatam, even being federally recognized, there was still the disrespect from the government and the complete arrogance and bullying of, of the job itself. Um, they didn't consult with our tribe and, and our, an immense amount of loss of water in an already dry area. And, and currently there's, you know, repairs being made. And so this is a historic, you know, um, wound that exists and it's because you know it's, it is the desert and what we do have left of it you know for generations our, our people have been acknowledging and and working on maintaining you know what what we have left after after so much you know has been taken from the dams to the extractions for this building for this wall construction they they used a uh, groundwater and we also watched as they um they sprayed you know daily water on the roads to better their construction jobs. Um, it was a wasteful thing, something our elders have also seen with our lands, uh, more specifically, you know, Hiachiratam lands and lands that have been divided up. You know, there's a copper mining operation and and now our lands, you know, are left with the, the tailings and, and the loss of, of medicinal plants as well as um, what came to be after the construction job of the border wall. And so it's this ongoing, you know, efforts for acknowledgement to be acknowledged by the government and, and for there to be repairs made. And it's not just, you know, in terms of water and land, it's, it's, you know, overall health. Uh, we do believe that these things are connected and as being connected to the Hashan, the, the Saguaro cactus, there was an immense amount of loss and our people have faced, you know, losses, not just through these battles, but also you know, through this epidemic. And so we, we believe that they're connected. So that's just a little bit of, of who we are. Thank you so much, Amber. Your steadfast commitment to the protection of communities, vis-a-vis water and the 
really kind of multiple sites of resistance. Um, I have a question perhaps, um, Amram, we can talk a little bit about if you could share a little bit about your own work and your own research and really kind of the impact of all of this on indigenous um, knowledge production. What are the implications of this type of work in preserving a decolonial praxis? And what does it mean to really be able to have, you know, folks like Napoleon and Amber on the ground committed to this work, but also preserving a particular epistemological tradition that is also part of the uh, colonial state's commitment to erasure? I invite you to reflect on that and anything else beyond that as well. Sure. Thank you. My father's family is from another part of Altham Dilbid. Um, we're from Yuma, Arizona, which was the most Western kind of region of the large, expansive Otham homelands, which covers southern Arizona in the U.S. and then northern Sonora in Mexico. And so our communities um, were once whole and are now divided by two colonial nation states occupying our homelands. And so the border is uh, often what is brought up in the media as defining the Otham experience now, but also as um, Napoleon and Amber shared, um, as desert peoples, we're also water people. And so my community was from the confluence of the Gila River and the uh, Colorado River. What I, I've been looking at in, you know, our history as Otham from Yuma, and, and we were federally recognized in the early part of the 20th century, but we are no longer currently recognized by the colonial government. Um, and we sit right at the U.S.-Mexico border is um, how both regimes, you know, the Spanish colonial regime and also the U.S. colonial regime has impacted us, how the extraction of those two rivers and of the um, minerals in the area, as Amber mentioned, the mines impacted us as well because Yuma was created as a gold rush boom town um, in the the mid uh, to late 1800s. And so part of what I look at is, is how the the colonial imaginary of how, you know, when Spanish colonizers and when U.S. colonizers came into our region and, and wanted to take the water, take the minerals, what they saw was the desert. And their only reference for the desert was um, Orientalist references, uh, that stereotypes they had of imperialist, you know, invasion and occupation of Ramona is from, <laughs> you know, so they carried these like very racist uh, images of pillaging and plundering from the Crusades of, you know, going into the Holy Lands of, of how they viewed the Levant as this area for pillage and plunder of Europe to make Europe better as the, the strategy of how they were going to come into autumn homelands. And so that's, you know, it ties in with how even the name Indians, you know, <laughs> there's this Orientalist lens, this gaze of, of colonial occupation of the Americas that kind of ties us as, as indigenous peoples, as a, a occupied and oppressed peoples in solidarity with, with um, you know, the first people who were under that state gaze, you know. So I think that's the connection that we have with folks um, from the Swana region is that, you know, that that same imperialist colonist gaze has been upon both of our peoples and putting us in relationship to each other. I want to come back on this. I think Amr has raised some very interesting points there about actually the, the relationship in a kind of Western epistemology about uh, deserts in this uh, Southwest of the United States. And of course, their understanding of deserts that comes from a long tradition of Orientalist thinking about 
Arabs and deserts and so forth. One, one question, though there are many things you might want to, to, to respond to in what's just been said, is the relationship between deserts and desertification. So people who don't understand anything about deserts always think of deserts as arid and dry and dead. Whereas I think the conversation has really brought us to understand that deserts are actually places with significant ecologies and that what's at stake is the management of those ecologies, not the idea that the desert is dead. And I, I wondered how that, that relates to the ongoing desertification, not only of Palestine, but of the whole region that, that, that is a huge problem in all kinds of respects and how you're thinking about that and, and how people can respond. Yeah, that's really like uh, a lot of uh, resonance to say, like with uh, what Amr is saying and uh, and when Amber and Napoleon also were speaking about, really like uh, a lot of uh, resonance to say, like with uh, what Amr is saying and uh, and when Amber and Napoleon also were speaking about, you know, how kind of categorizations that we have been placed under, you know, that, oh, this region is arid, this, this region has water scarce and the whole idea is how, how colonial, colonialists come and, and change and make it better and make it more efficient and kind of really look, look down at, you know, how, uh, how arid it, it is or how primitive it looks or how bad management the indigenous people have been treating the land. So a lot of these ideas kind of not only stay within the colonial uh, mindset and uh, the colonial powers, but also they kind of trickle down to to a lot of kind of also, say, Arab or Palestinian or indigenous people as well, where we start thinking that, oh, to be modern is to do this to our land, you know, to change it, to make it more profitable, to, to change our planting, uh, to change our crops, to, to let go of certain crops that don't have any uh, economic benefit, let's say. So, so I, I feel also that kind of these ideas uh, not only are just mere categorizations or like kind of characterizations of our lands, and, but it's also kind of shifting our, our thinking and our understanding of the world we live in and our relationship with that world and with that ecosystem. Um, so indeed in Palestine, like the idea that uh, making the desert, you know, the very infamous slash like very popular way that it, uh, you know, the colonization of Palestine has been framed to kind of make it the desert bloom uh, also denotes the fact that, oh, deserts are like just barren. They're just left uh, that, you know, Palestinians uh, and Arabs in the region do not know how to manage land, do not know how to manage resources. And kind of also the, what, what's worrying as well is that when we speak today of a climate crisis, we come back to those narratives very strongly. So the Orientalist gaze returns again in a very intensified manner because we come with you know international donors with this globalized idea what of what climate change is and what what it needs to be done to actually tackle it but by saying the same things by reiterating the fact that oh uh, desertification is happening in those areas and this is how we need to, to tackle it. We need to tackle it with, you know, uh, market-based solutions. We need to tackle it with economic activities, uh, with like drought-resistant crops and kind of also going back and not really addressing the fact that, you know, a climate crisis is a, a colonial. It's, it's a legacy of colonialism. It's, it, that's where it's rooted. It's not in the industrial revolution only. It goes back more than that and it's more than just material uh you know 
climate change um, phenomena. It's actually has a lot to do with with you know uh, stripping people away from their land and taking people away from uh, from like look like from indigenous and traditional ways of managing land that cannot be returned today it's not about you know going back to you know community based agriculture only or going back to uh, indigenous crops and replanting them again but it's all it's it's, it's a systematic shift that is required um so what what i just wanted to say that you know it's just that's that's how i feel about kind of when speaking of desertification when speaking about a lot of uh, you know climate change impacts that we're facing they're very real they they're happening but without you know acknowledging and addressing the root cause of them and without kind of link, looking looking historically to this trajectory of colonial plunder uh, that we cannot really uh, speak of you know, solving those issues as if, and, and actually like thinking of them as not only issues of desertification or drying up of certain areas, but much more than that. Um, there's a lot to say about, of course, uh, you know, there is the, uh, the settler colonial project of Israel and what is done not only in Palestine, but also in the Arab world, uh, combined with like colonial powers, with the British, uh, with Americans also coming in and actually, um, influencing the way we actually perceive our natural resources and how we manage them. I can just follow up on, on that idea of desertification, though, is that, um, you know, there, the epistemological difference is that, you know, in a colonial mindset, the desert is a wasteland, but it is also a, a utopia. It is like a terra nullis, and, you know, indigenous people are just, you know, meant to be wiped away from this, like, supposedly clean slate where you know, the settler can reimagine themselves in this oasis or utopia that they want to create in the, the desert. And so there's the, those dual functions of, you know, dumping on us, making us a toxic wasteland, and the, at the same time trying to remove us and remove the life that is there from the desert so that they can make the life that they want instead. And I think the the, the rupture to that, at least, um, you know, as, as I learned it from my elders, um, you know, is that uh, our way of thinking is, is you know, not so linear and is much more like uh, situated in, in terms of relationship with the other living entities of the land and the water and the, the sky and the elements. And so, like, I think about when my, you know, when I would talk to my grandfather and I would ask him stories about um, our old village or Yuma or any of any history of the region, he, he wouldn't answer the question right away. He would instead talk about what the two rivers were like before they were dammed. And he would spend like a good, sometimes up to an hour, just describing the power of these two rivers um, and what it was like at the confluence of them. And he would talk about, you know, how the Colorado River in Yuma used to be, you know, 40 feet deep and almost um, half a mile wide. And, you know, to, to get the scope and the scale, he would talk about the taste of the water. And he would talk about, you know, all the different species that used to live there and go, you know, through his memories of different stories that he had learned. And to the point when I first, as a kid, like went to Yuma, I was expecting to see this massive river because it was so real as if it had been that way still to me. And it, it took me a while, you know, not until I was an adult to realize that the river he was telling me about was the river as it existed, like in his grandparents' memory, 
you know, <laughs> um, because there have been so many dams on it, that he was still trying to preserve a, a memory of the river before all of these dams um, that I'm fortunate to have inherited, but but to always remind us that the, the really the river is the entity that has power. The river is the entity that can tell you the story, that can tell you whether, um, you know, this is a subject we can even talk about today. And so that, that relationship of, even though our community was a mix of Hyachidatam, Akunatam, Tanatam peoples, that we all were oriented by the space, um, oriented by the power of the river, or even the other sources of water, like um, the potholes that, you know, would collect the water in the mountains. And that would be how you could travel away from the river, was that there were these other springs, you know, and there were these other, um, you know, mountain pools of, of rainwater. You know, um, everything was always the story of the water or of, how the you know the weather patterns would bring you know water from the ocean to the desert this larger relationship with the ocean as a whole sacred being um and that's a very different way of like seeing you know the world if i i was just trying to ask him you know what did your you know grandparents like to do on the weekend and this would be the story that i would get <laughs> you know and so it, it would just you know to always be that point of reference um is that there's something larger than us that is alive and vibrant and has power and that we are responsible to it's a very different way of relating to the desert and it, it's it's a very much more humble way than thinking of the desert as just there for us to dump on or there for us to like create some utopia out of but is actually something that we are responsible to that that is more powerful than us that is so sacred um and that we are just a small element of its of its larger being is it's just a very different way of thinking <laughs> You are tuned to Swana Region Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and streaming worldwide at kpfk.org. Our topic today is the protection of water sources in the settler colonial regimes of Palestine and the U.S. Southwest. Mona, actually, I would like for us to return to the relationship between gender, water, and memory in just a moment. And I'm specifically thinking of the word, work of Nafisa Najib. I don't know, Mona, if you're familiar with her, but one of my first introductions to really, um, actually, what I'm going to share in terms of your elders and um, kind of underscoring the relationship to water comes from that. So, but before we move into that um, conversation, I did want to return to Napoleon and Amber. Um, Napoleon, you had mentioned that um, there are different avenues, resistance avenues that are being used uh, by the collective, by folks on the ground. And you mentioned uh, legal avenues as being one. Um, I was hoping you can both el- elaborate a little bit more on the resistance strategies. What are some other tools that are being used, ways to kind of decolonize uh, the ways in which water is being um, monopolized, utilized, violently removed from indigenous communities. And if you could elaborate a little bit more on the legal and the limits of the legal, but also what are some of the other strategies that are being um, used? The legal part, I think Amber could speak a little bit more on. I think what what our primary goal in any legal sense that has always um, impacted us 
um, is bringing the traditional knowledge, the culture, um, you know, trying to say to an illegal system where putting rivers, you know, traditionally traditional ecological knowledge into a legal system from an indigenous perspective is really hard to do. Um, only because there are things that, you know, stories, things that we're not supposed to tell during certain months of the year. These are go back way before any type of legal system. And we, we have to quote unquote le- legitimize that is uh, a lot of the, a lot of the times the commonality that we get is that, oh, you can, you know, bring in your elders, tell them what it is, but it needs to have some sort of scientific legalization jargon behind it where we have to really rely on things like, for instance, um, the endangered species. You know, we have to bring in a lot of these other things that other indigenous communities have utilized to try to protect their areas. So there are shortcomings and there are victories in that. And what we really utilize is trying to bring that 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 balance between what is legal and what is our traditional knowledge and how do we bring that into force that we can um, rely on it to have a substantial argument. We can do what we can debate what is there for what room is there for us to bring in these systems and for us to utilize it. And um, I think what with with the shortcomings is always going to be, you know, it's always going to be an uphill battle for um, strategic legal defense and a lot of things like that. It's always going to be that way until you really see some, some, um, uh, some really change in that. Um, I've seen it in more grassroots led um, and grassroots led organizing such as OABC. Um, You've seen folks from Standing Rock, who have that legality understanding and are able to back it up and say, let's make this, let's tune this up. Let's um, help in solidarity. A lot of Palestinian groups here at ASU have also been in solidarity of a lot of things that have been going on in Palestine and the occupation of settler colonialism and what the legality of on, on, on different terms on that, especially for us here. So what do we do to help, um, put these things into our legal arguments and how do we win and what does that look like? Because for a lot of times one indigenous community could have one problem. We win on that case, but another indigenous community could utilize that win and use those basis for those particular debates. So I think it's, it's just a matter of time before we start seeing a lot of things kind of outgrow from our grassroots organizing to to legal strategies, indigenous legal strategies that we can utilize. Um, but I think Amber, uh, being in the process and being one of the main, um, you know, <laughs> spearheads of our, our, our lead um, organizing could chime in a little bit on that. Sure. So, you know, you met, you mentioned the gender and, you know, the connection we have with water. And so that's, Pretty much what has been, you know, guiding us, you know, so it's not, it's our elders, you know, guiding us in these, to these, you know, places in these ways, educating us on, you know, the, 
the feminine masculine qualities, you know, of, of very specific parts of our, 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 um, our and, you know, our way of life. And, you know, for instance, Keto Paquito, that is part of a sacred journey, um, that men take and, and the, you know, the role that women take. And while we were resisting, um, border wall construction, we, we made it a point for, you know, us as women to be present with this, you know, with our, with our lands and our water, um, we sing and, and, you know, we did, you know, what we could to, to honor those moments, um, you know, because we recognized it being this feminine, you know, quality and struggle. And, and so as like, you know, women from the area, like we, we made it a point to, to just be present and with the, um, with the case that was taken to trial, um, we did also face, you know, this masculine, uh, patriarchal way of, of governing. And, you know, it was this battle we faced, you know, we were already facing the ridicule and, um, the intimidation tactics from, you know, those who, who were in supportive of the Trump administration and also the building of this wall and, and the, um, and the contracts that were made. So there was this sense of like protection and, um, you know, hovering over those, you know, jobs to be done. And then there was the people on the ground who were resisting and, you know, women on the ground who are facing, um, the, the attitudes of these men. And, you know, there, there was, um, you know, real, real hurtful ways. Um, there are real hurtful things that we were experiencing as women. Um, you know, the power of these men in their positions, um, in uniform and, you know, even just to, to, to accomplish a job. And so in the, in the courtroom, um, so fighting this court case felt important because it felt like there needed to be some sort, some, you know, sense of accountability. Like, look, we have every right to be with our lands. Um, you know, whether they are federal or not, you know, whether we are federally recognized or not, you know, we, we come from these lands and we have every right to be with these lands. And, and so arguing that in court was important because we've been denied so much access and we've been denied um, acknowledgement and our voices and, you know, with our history being documented with so much being known um, by these, you know, federal agencies, you know, regarding who we are as people and our, our ancestral connections to these lands, you know, as, as women, um, you know, it was important for us to just maintain our, our battle. And, um, you know, it was, it was difficult and, you know, we, all went through something traumatic, you know, whether you were there on the ground or not, we witnessed the same battle and it was heart wrenching, um, knowing, you know, not knowing what the end result will be for our, our sacred water and our lands and the future of our people. And so that's, you know, something we've been living, um, through. And then, so currently, you know, with the case, with the win of the case, so in court, you know, the government did attempt to deny the use of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And they attempted to um, claim that, you know, they wanted to divide up the area of, of of the arrest, claiming that, you know, the water was separate from the area where we were arrested. 
And so we had to educate them and explain that, no, the water, the area is connected to the water. The water is connected to the land. That's the area surrounding is all the, you know, this, the sacred part of our, our history and, you know, and beyond the border. Um, and, you know, we have every right to be there. So we had to argue that in court and, you know, even explain that we, it was explaining to the, the government who had this narrow perception of religion that, you know, our church or our place of um, prayer was, you know, outdoor, out in nature. And, and it was part of our way of life and being, and it was, had deep connections to our, our history. And they also attempted to deny um, the testimony from a respected elder who was a living document for, you know, the battles of our water and our lands. And, and so currently um, in court, so we are, this case was being submitted into as a testimony with the um, expert mechanisms, United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Pe- People. So we are in, waiting for September. In September, this case um, is being taken as part of a human rights violation. And there was also, you know, another um just meeting with representatives from the United Nations and, and speaking on, you know, the, the various articles that they've been in violation of. And, you know, these articles, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, that's these um, rights protect not just our own ways of being, our own traditions and cultures, but of that of others. Muna Amber has been, been talking about the, the legal struggle and I know you emphasized, and I entirely agree with you, that that um, the whole question has to be thought within the frame of how to decolonize from settler colonialism. But within the Palestinian context, where obviously Israeli courts and Israeli law are completely weighted against Palestinian voices and Palestinian struggles, how how do you negotiate the legal system in the short term in order to protect Palestinian water resources from, you know, the right of individuals to, to dig wells to the larger picture of uh, extraction of groundwater and so forth? Yeah, it's also a very, like, a, it has been a very difficult task, I would say, um, because at one end, as you said, like, you know, the legal system is not only devised to exclude you, they don't really see you as as uh, a rightful recipient of any sorts of right, uh, like the Israeli um, and legal understanding of Palestinians, uh, that they are just consumers of water, where Israel is actually generously, you know, providing water not only for, for its own citizens, but also for Palestinians. But that happens to be their own water being, you know, sold to, to us. Uh, that's water underneath our feet. And even beyond that, you know, Arab water, let's say in general, like in the Jordan River Basin, where, where water that is not really uh, belonging to Israel. But that's kind of the way I, th- I think. You know, Israel sees us in, from a legal perspective. But again, Palestinians, we've been using international law uh, to speak on our behalf. We haven't been using, you know, any type of customary law or kind of linking back to, you know, what indigenous struggles uh, struggles uh, that we have been listening now to from uh, from Amber, from Napoleon and from Amra. You know, that the fact that, you know, we can 
have a much stronger legal standpoint. Uh, we've relied on international law to kind of be our voice, you know, and uh, which has its detrimental effects. It's very limiting in many different ways because it doesn't speak of indigenous rights. It speaks again as, um, um, it speaks, you know, from a nation state perspective. I always say, like, for example, for Palestinians who live inside, uh, inside 48 with inside historic Palestine, if you want to call it. Uh, so Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship, for example, do not really come under that, uh, you know, international law because the, the assumption is that Israel is providing equal water, equal water rights and quantities to them as well. But that's not the case. We have so many unrecognized villages uh, of Palestinians inside Israel don't, don't have access to water or electricity for that matter. Uh, and also access to agricultural land that has been denied, uh, that has been confiscated. So agricultural communities inside, uh, inside 48 as well, you know, faced face unequal access to water and that really changes not only their livelihood practices but their uh, but their viewpoints on water and and I think that that's that way like we can actually open up you know this legal uh, limitations that we've been put under because of the reality of the last few decades of you know Oslo accords and the fact that there is a peace process uh, where we're speaking the language of the international community we're speaking the language of you know a quantifiable legal right rather than speaking of you know uh, an ancestral right and an ancestral harm what amber actually speaks about really resonates because kind of this uh, generational trauma the fact that we are really still overcoming it uh, that i really feel very strongly about and what amber was saying as well about you know the the fact that uh, this uh, memory keeping the memory alive of, you know, our resources as forceful as they were, as, you know, as connected as they, they were connecting us as people, they're connecting us as, as groups living in that, in this, in the Levant, for example. Um, and that kind of, if we, if, if we forget that memory uh, that is being passed by generations, we forget part of our identity and, and our struggle will, will look very different. And it would be a struggle over quantities of water rather than this, the spiritual connection, rather than the ancestral connections that I feel is, of course, is, is much more powerful than any law or legal arrangement that is being, that we're being forced to actually comply with. As Napoleon is saying at the end, it's just our way of like choosing our battles today. Uh, but kind of, when we when we really um, keep the memory alive of what these resources mean and and you know the 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 very rich and deep historical connection the spiritual connections and kind of bring them to the forefront makes a big difference and I find inspiration actually from all of what I'm hearing today because I feel from our part of the world like in the Levant and Palestine we've been really sensitized into not really connecting with the spiritual, uh, with our ancestral uh, history and, and uh, you know, and knowledge and uh, wisdom. And uh, yeah, and I feel that that, that is that, that what's need to be revived actually with, with connections like these and with, uh, uh, with conversation and with learning, you know, from, from, from all of the, you know, from all of the, uh, well, very tragic, very, uh, um, very heartbreaking histories that we share with uh, with indigenous groups uh, around the world. So, um, yeah. 
is just seems like the beginning of hopefully other conversations. Thank you to Muna and Amra and Napoleon and Amber for sharing um, the really important work that really underscores this, um, the sacredness of water, um, water as memory, as spirituality, as communal. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for our show today. Our guests have been Muna Dajani, a Palestinian Jerusalemite and a research associate at Lancaster Environment Center. And Odam Anti-Border Collective members, Amara Salomon Jay, Amber Ortega, and Napoleon Marietta. Thank you all so much. And that's it for our show today. All our shows are available to download at kpfk.org. Our podcast can be found on anchor.fm forward slash swana and on many other podcast platforms. You can also follow our updates on Facebook and Instagram. We thank you in advance for sharing our podcast widely. Thanks, as always, to Ankina Antaram for post-production and to the great team of board ops who ensure our shows get on air every week. My name is David Lloyd of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective. And on behalf of my co-host, Rana Sharif, and all of our collective members, I'd like to wish our listeners a great day. We'd also like to thank at this time our sister show, Middle East in Focus, for donating us their showtime today to allow us a full hour for this important conversation. Check in with us again next week at the usual time of 1.30 p.m. And don't forget to listen to Middle East in Focus, regularly scheduled at 1 p.m. on Sunday, right before Swana Region Radio. And please don't forget to donate and support this invaluable station at kpfk.org. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>